0: Are you looking for truth from God's Word that you can understand and apply to your life? You'll find it today on Make It Clear with Dr. Stan Pons, Bible teacher and president of Florida Bible College in beautiful Orlando. Listen now as Stan makes it clear.
1: He said, I want you to go to Jerusalem because there you're going to receive power of the Holy Spirit. And from there, you're going to be witnesses Where? In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. So what he's really doing by this story is kind of setting us up by his own example, again, of what we're to do. Now, it doesn't mean we go to Jerusalem. That's where those disciples began. And so today we can say, where is our Jerusalem? Right here, Nuwadu, Honolulu. And then we bridge out to our own little area of Judea, and then Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the world. So what you're seeing again even though we're going to talk about strengthening our faith, the point is, is Jesus has a master plan. Do you all agree with that? Say, "Uh uh-huh. Master plan. Now, within that master plan, he says, I need to have a little boy get sick. I need to have a nobleman recognize there's something about this Jesus miracle worker, and I got to bring somehow Jesus to my little boy. Now, that's a little story we read, sometimes even to the kids in Sunday school, but there's a lot more behind that story because it too fits into this huge master plan that even we can't understand all of it. It's so magnanimous, but yet so practical for us. So that would be a little bit of the geographical bearings. Well, let's go a little bit further to the spiritual bearings. In verse 44, it says this, For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, remember he's traveling north, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem and the feast, for they themselves also went to the feast. Therefore he came again to Canaan of Galilee, where he had made the water into wine, and there was, and I'll stop there for a moment. So let's talk about the spiritual thing that's happening. Most of you have read where it says a prophet doesn't have any honor in his own country, etc. Well, that sounds kind of squirrely there because Jesus is in his own country and at the same time, you're going to find that the Galileans received him. Now, that's where you need to have a Bible that might help you understand this. In one translation, it'll say that they received him. In the same translation, it'll say there's no honor. There's a great Deal of difference between being received somewhere and being honored somewhere. And if you follow this track of what Jesus is doing in his own country, you're going to find some things. Now, remember, it said that they saw him or were aware of him doing miracles in Jerusalem. Well, what what are they really saying? These Galileans are saying, "One of our homeboys, this Jesus boy, he went on down there and he did some great things, and he's coming back again. So, our homeboy has done some great things. We have a superstar coming back to our area." It'd be no different than if we had one of our homeboys go off in the mainland, make it real big. We hear some great things about him on the mainland. He's coming back and the newspapers talk all about him and we meet him at the airport. That's pretty much what happened. Now, it looks like we're honoring them, but at least at this point, we're receiving them. They didn't know a whole lot about Jesus except one thing. He's a miracle worker. Now, you've got to remember that because I'm going to talk about miracles and signs and all that in a moment. So, let's go a bit further. If you take this a little bit further in John chapter 4, verse 48, it talks about Jesus is speaking to this nobleman, but then he says, and all the rest of you guys over here, the crowd, you want to see signs and wonders, but you still yet don't believe. The point of the matter, they received him, but they didn't receive him as Savior, as Lord, as Messiah. All they received him is a homeboy that did miracles and wants to see a miracle right now out of this guy. So we're starting to see, I receive you, but I'm not yet ready to honor you for who you are, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. If you go a little bit further, and we don't have time to do this, but in John chapter 6, it talks about that now these folks are mumbling and grumbling about him. So they went from receiving to, I don't know if I really want this stuff. Five verses later in verse 66 of John, it says this. It says, now that they heard him, and many of them didn't believe, and they walked away and left him. And, of course, I stopped there at chapter 6, but if you go further, they not only left him, but then you've got a whole group of people that eventually came together, and you know the rest of the story, although a lot of that was Romans. The point still being is that a prophet has no honor in his own home, but yet Jesus says, I still want to reach them for this time. It's all important. Now, as a side note for you, Matthew, Mark, Luke talk a lot about his Galilean ministry. John talks very little about his Galilean ministry. And so you may want to go to the other Gospels to find out more about that. So again, you need to know the spiritual thing is, is Jesus, even though he's doing this, listen, listen, listen. I don't have time to build this up for next week or the week after, is that he does this miracle, and even though he does this miracle, there still are some homeboys that really get upset at Jesus, and you're going to start seeing this crescendo of anger and persecution start rising more and more against Jesus. So it is true. There is no honor in his own country For this prophet and so he's kind of prophesying this statement and getting us ready for it so that would be perhaps some of the spiritual background a little bit further in that i don't have time to unpack this but there's also the what we might call the the people that are involved in this and some of the people that are involved in this would be of course the gentiles a lot of the jews are in here we're also going to see this nobleman we're going to see his little boy so there's a lot in this little story here that makes a lot of sense so if you will Let's pick it up a little bit here and talk about who this is. So follow along in verse 46. All right? It says, Therefore he came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water into wine. What event did he make the water into wine? Anybody just shout it out. What was it? The wedding. Great. Okay. Then it says, And there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. Now you say Cana, Capernaum. Where would that be? Well, Capernaum, we know, is basically on the waterway of the Sea of Galilee. And we know that it's about 700 feet below sea, sea level and the hills of Canaan were about 16 miles northwest of that area. And so what we'd see is that one location, Jesus was over there and another location, the little boy was at a different place. And so now we see what's happening here because there's this nobleman who has a sick boy who is sick at Capernaum. Now, I'd like to pause for a moment and talk about that. This isn't just an isolated event. And you may disagree with me on this, but maybe it's my consummate complete belief in the sovereignty of God that I believe that God permitted this boy to be sick and that God permitted this boy of this nobleman to be ill. And it doesn't mean that he prescribed it, although we might go that far, but at least we can go as far as to say he was permitted to be sick. Because if he wasn't sick, Jesus couldn't heal him. If he couldn't heal him, they wouldn't have this story. If we didn't have this story, we wouldn't see how this thing continues to build for the bigger picture of what Jesus is doing. And let me speak to some of you. I think of all the people in the last 2,000 years that have either heard or read about this story here. And when you read about a sick child, and it really is, it's a boy, it's not a teenager, it's a boy, sick boy. How would you feel when your kids are sick? I remember I received recently an email from a mother whose daughter was sick on the mainland how she was just asking for prayer. Now she had confidence and faith, but she also knew God had to take care of the situation. I could feel the pathos of that mother and the feeling of it all. Some of you are like that. But I think those of less of you that have experienced even more than that, and that's this. A child that is sick, but is sick unto death, knowing that this is a death sickness. This child is so sick that Perhaps whatever you tried to do in your own little way, it just wasn't working. And this is not to despair the medical profession, but sometimes we even do that and there's no more left to them. I received a a letter today from a, a former involved person with Child Evangelism Fellowship. His wife had some kind of a sickness inside. They did exploratory surgery. They still don't know why, but there's some kind of septic thing going on and all of a sudden all of her blood is being drained from other part of her extremities to take care of wherever this infection is that now they're amputating her fingers and her hands, etc. Now that's a wife. When my wife was diagnosed with cancer, there's that feeling and I want you to feel that pathos because part of that is driving this man to do anything he could which would be a Roman going to a Jew and seeing what could happen and a whole lot more behind that. I'm also thinking that no matter how much money we have, we often can't solve our problems. So you might be facing your own sickness of a situation that you know it's going to end in something that's pretty horrible. And no matter how rich you are, no matter how high up the ladder you might be in your political or career, it doesn't matter any of that because as much as you try, you're going to try to grab whatever will work. And I think part of this story is to maybe try some things that you will, but very soon that you would go to Jesus Christ and keep him first as the one who would resolve that for you. And so this is what he's doing here. So we see that. And so where is Capernaum? 20 miles away, sick child. You can feel the pain. Official and king, uh, we call him Herod and Tippus' court. But now I'd like to talk about the seven stages of faith. And the reason I want to do that is because I want to show you that faith sometimes takes a journey. And it starts here. Sometimes it can move quickly. Sometimes it could go forward to deeper faith. And it can slide back again. But I'm hoping that man, as we go through these seven stages, you might ask yourself, where am I? But I don't want to just throw it in faith in general. I'd like you to, and you could do that. It's all right. But I'd like you to maybe look in terms of areas of your life that you see that are so insurmountable, that are real issues that you need to deal with. I want you to think about that as we go through these seven. Now, to do that, I have to explain what's the difference between unbelief and belief. And so, if you will, give me a few moments for that. I'm going to try to bring it to you from a theological point of view. All right, first of all, we're going to talk about belief and unbelief in the saving faith arena, okay? There's a lot of belief we can have, but I'm going to talk about saving faith, all right? All right. One question about saving faith is how much faith do you have to have in order to be saved? We already know in Scripture the faith of a little child, the faith of a grain of mustard seed. The idea is it doesn't have to be intellectually understood completely, nor does it have to be huge and big in order to be saved. In fact, even faith doesn't save you. It's the object of your faith that does. So that's a little bit about faith. Now some of you might say, do I have enough faith to be saved? I really think you do. How do I know? Because all of you are exercising faith here except for Arnold in the back. Okay, And the reason is, is Arnold's watching the door in case anybody has an immediate need. He'll be right there for you. He's standing. You have faith in the chair you're sitting on right now. If you thought that chair wouldn't hold you up, do you think you'd have sat on that chair? Answer that, everyone. No, I wouldn't have sat on that chair. So you have enough faith for that. Let's go back to saving faith. Saving faith generally involves three things. First, you have to hear and know the truth. So the truth has to be given to you that you hear it. That's part one. You've got to have all three. You can't have bits of it. You have to have all of it. The second thing of saving faith is you have to believe that what you heard is true. So it's not just, i got information, but I don't believe it. No, you've got to believe what you hear as true. But that still isn't saving faith. Saving faith, then, is going to end with when you put your full confidence in that truth that you heard. So we who are Christians, to those of you that are on their journey to find Christ, we want to make sure you're hearing the message. We also want you to hear the message as accurately and as compassionately as we can make it. But yet the confidence is in God's word and the Holy Spirit to bring that all together for you. But now you're hearing the truth. The one thing we cannot do is to make you place your faith alone in Christ. That's the belief. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Now, there may be stages of all of this, but it's those three that are the bottom line foundation. All right, over here I want to talk about unbelief. And so what would be unbelief? Unbelief would be someone who perhaps has not, how can I say this, they have not been made aware of the truth. In other words, they, they haven't even heard it. Now, This is going to be a very fine line, so please listen very carefully what I'm saying and not saying. It's a person who is already prepared by God in some measure, something's happened that all they have to do is to hear that salvation is by faith alone and Christ alone, and they'll trust Christ as Savior. That does not necessarily mean that they have to actually hear the exact verse in the Bible. But it does mean that they have to hear the truth of salvation, even if it is explained with man's words. Now, if you want to know an illustration of that, go all the way back to the beginning of John. And you'll hear that the couple of the early disciples, they never met Jesus. John the Baptist told them what to do, and they did it right then. That would be that rare group of people. That's why sometimes you can go to a meeting and someone can get up here and maybe not quote a Bible verse, but accurately still articulate the plan of salvation and there will be people that are out there that will trust Christ. Now, listen carefully. That does not mean, therefore, just spit the gospel out any way you know. God doesn't want that. That's for those that will happen from time to time. If they don't ever hear that, they can't be saved because they still need to hear the truth in order to call upon Him. The second area of unbelief would be those who have information but they haven't engaged that information for themselves. This would be the illustration where Jesus is now with the Samaritan woman. He is speaking to the Samaritan woman now. He is the Messiah. He is the great I am in that passage as it talks about I am him, that kind of thing. He's speaking that to her. And she's still dialoguing until there's that moment where she realizes that she needs to drink of that water of Jesus so she'll never thirst again. So there is that information sharing, but it's actually, here it, is, here it is, it's the words of Jesus. That's why it is so vital that you do know God's word. And I encourage all of you Christians to memorize verses specifically on the plan of salvation, which will explain that we're lost we're destined to be separated from him in a real place called hell. That to go to heaven, we've got to be perfect. We can't be perfect, so it's not of works. So that Jesus is the Lord who died and rose again, and that by faith in him, we can have eternal life. Know those verses, so when you're speaking, because the power is in the gospel, the power is in his word. So if they don't have that sometimes, they're not going to believe. So you need engaging with that. Here's the third. Some people need more evidences in order for them. That's why we teach classes here on apologetics because some people, they can hear your testimony, they can read the words of Jesus, but they need a little bit more. So they need more evidences. Now, where do we get that? Perhaps in the Bible, I would use the illustration where Jesus then was quoting the Old Testament, casting down wrong reasons. He was doing signs and miracles back then and so that people could see them. Today, we don't need those same signs and miracles because the greatest sign or miracle that we have today is the inerrant, infallible Word of God that you have access to. And it is so supernatural that as you read it with even your spirit, God then will take your spirit with His Word and engage His Spirit with you and at that time to bring you to saving knowledge of Christ. But there are times that you need evidences. So that's the time that we bring out Some of the explanations of how we can depend upon God's word scientifically, historically, prophetically, all these things. That is also helpful. So those are three things that if you don't engage with belief in that, from that, that's an unbelief. There's one more. There are those that can hear the gospel. There are those that you could even give gospel tracts to or even leave them scripture verses. You could spend days, hours, I don't know, going over the proofs of scripture to them, the evidences here that demand a verdict. And even though those evidences that demand a verdict of them trusting Christ, their verdict is, nah, I don't want him. And those are sometimes your late-night comedians on television. They'll mock God, they'll mock Christ. I think of those who are the interviewers of Christian pastors, etc., and those pastors are doing the best they can to try to communicate the gospel to this interviewer, and he's asking questions, and he's not really engaging in the truth. It's almost like there's a hard-heartedness about them. And only God can break that heart in His timing. And that unbelief, as all the rest, if they don't step over the line, for whatever reason, and I say this, and I wish I could put my arm around and, 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 and hold you when I say this, that, that unbelief is a damnable sin that will send you to a Christless eternity forever. And it doesn't have to be that way. So He'll do all the work to bring you to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, but that little step over the line is that little choice that you have to make. And I pray that you do. What seems like i spend all this time background. How am I going to get over these seven stages? Well, we're going to go through these pretty quickly. You can see there's not a lot of subpoints, So let's follow along. Are you ready for the journey? Are you ready? Let's go. All right. So the seven stages. I want to talk about stage number one. We're going to call it signs and wonders here because that's what the Lord says here. He refers to it as well. So follow along as I pick it up here. It says the royal official, verse 46, says whose son was sick at Capernaum when he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, which wouldn't be hard because the reputation of Christ was coming everywhere. This royal person here could have maybe heard about it or Galileans were pilgrimaging back up to the area talking about what they've seen Jesus do in Jerusalem, who knows. He went to Jesus and was imploring him to come down and heal his son for he was at the point of death. Now in your Bibles you could circle the word imploring, imploring. That means he was begging Jesus. He was going after him again and again and again. He was trying to muscle his way to the front of the line. He was using every bit of influence he could to communicate to Jesus, I need you to come down to where I'm at. Remember Jesus and Canaan, he's down in Capernaum. His son's down in Capernaum. I need you to come down here and you got to do it quickly because my son is at the point of death, so he's not just saying my kid's got a cold, he's saying my kid's going to die and you've got to get down here. Now when I read this here, I, I, I'm, I'm so amazed at, at how this guy has misunderstood who Jesus really is. First of all, when he says, you've got to come down here, he doesn't know that Jesus could, can heal anywhere in the world. He wants to heal anybody. He doesn't have to be right there physically looking at you, touching you. Now, he did do that at times. You remember the mustard plaster, all that kind of stuff, and the eye spit and all that. Put it on there, rather, rather that. He said, I can do that, but Jesus said, I don't need to come down there. But he, this guy thinks he has to come there. The other thing is that I think Jesus can heal him, but he couldn't raise him from the dead. So what he had was a very shallow understanding of the lordship of Christ. But whatever he did have... He said, whatever you can do, Jesus, you're the man. I need you to come down here and to do this. But now we get into the signs and wonders. So it says, so Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. Let me talk about signs and wonders, but in the context here. It says, Jesus said to him, then he says, unless you people. In the Greek, the word you there, he's not saying unless you, royal person, He's now speaking to the royal person, but his comment is to a broader audience. He's saying, unless you all see signs and wonders, you all simply will not believe. So the point is, he's saying, your group of people need to have signs and wonders. It's interesting. This guy wasn't really caring about signs and wonders. He just said, I want my son healed. The crowds wanted to have signs and wonders. I also enjoy this because Jesus did do a lot of signs and wonders. And for some people, they might need to see signs and wonders. And maybe that's where you really are. I don't know. But I would like to cause you to at least seriously consider not looking so much for signs and wonders because the Lord much would rather respond to you and your walk with Him through His already greatest sign and wonder, which should be the signs and wonders recorded in Scripture already. It's not that you need more. Just believe the ones that He's already given to you. And then secondly, believe the Word that He's already given to you because that's all you really need. This is what He says. so signs and wonders shouldn't tickle you. It shouldn't wow you. You shouldn't look at it as more signs and wonders it's like going to an amusement park. And most of these people wanted to do more signs and wonders. It wasn't really about them. We just want to see Jesus the magician do all this stuff. And I'm not going to mock those that are in the signs and wonders movement because I'd like to reach them. But at the same time, that is a very low level. In fact, Scripture says that we should walk by faith and not by sight. So some of us have put so much emphasis on the signs and wonders stuff. I'm wondering if it's not only causing us to have a famine in our soul, we're grieving the Lord because we're doing it the wrong way, but because we respect those people that are out there that are allowing that stuff to happen, we lean into that. And by the way, wouldn't we all agree that Satan has the power and the ability to do signs and wonders? So wouldn't that cause us to question what's of God, what's not, and all of this? And couldn't Satan do a sign and wonder that's so close to the Lord, but it's not exactly what he wanted, but it looks so good because he brings Jesus into this thing, and Jesus' people are kind of doing this thing. So we follow this, and all Satan has done is see how close I could counterfeit this, and we're drawn away. And so maybe for us, we might need to Christian up and uh, really lean into the Bible here. But... Nonetheless, Jesus did do signs. So if you need a sign and wonder, he did the one at Cana when he turned the water into wine. And he's going to do another sign and wonder right here when he did this to this little boy and he healed him. So what more signs and wonders do you need? One should be enough. He's given you two. In the gospel here, there's seven to eight significant described signs besides all the ones he alluded to in here. So we have all that we need right here. And folks, look at me right now, okay? I love you. Those that are listening, I love. if you're in the signs, I really love you. But I want to make sure that, that you see that as a more shallower one and that God wants us to come up a little higher. Let's go to stage two. We're going to call it the crisis faith. I think a lot of us have been in this one. I know I have been, especially with loved ones, and sometimes in my own life. If you'll see here, verse 47 again, it says and come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. And then verse 49, this says, the royal official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Would you underline the word before my child dies? Can you feel again the expediency? He says, I need to have this done now in my life. Please, now, a crisis situation that we've all gone through. Have you ever been there where, Lord, I need to have this thing done now? I know I have been. And sometimes I'm wondering if the Lord allows us Watch this now. He allows us to go through this crisis a little while longer so that it's not about the solution of my crisis that strengthens my faith. Watch this. But the realization that in the midst of the crisis, I am not alone and that Jesus is there and he really cares for me. And during this crisis, I am becoming a stronger, more potent Christian, a Christ follower than I ever would have been if he didn't allow me to spend a little bit longer than this crisis. Dumb illustration, some of you heard it before, but this might help you to see this. I was about a seven year old boy. My dad wanted to teach me how to swim, so he taught me all the strokes. But after a while, he put me in the, in the uh, swimming pool. And in the swimming pool, he gets in the water with me. And while he's in the water with me, he lets me lay on top of the water with my little strokes. And I'm a little seven year old boy. And he puts his knee on my chest. And he says, okay, swim. And I knew I was okay because my dad's knee was on my chest and I could do what I needed to do. So I did that all the way across the pool. So he turned around and he says, we're going go to go the other side of the pool. Not the length, but the width. I was a little kid. And so he says, all right, what I want you to do now is I want you to swim. You can do it. And I'm going to be right in front. You. Can you see me? Look at me in the eye. He says, okay, I'm going to lower my knee, Stanley. And when I do that now, I want you to swim to me. Look at my hands are out. All you got to do is touch my hands. I'll be right there for you. Swim to my hands. Okay? And I did, and I grabbed his hands. Then he said, okay, do it again, do it again. He said, do it again. This time there were no hands, okay? And I'm paddling like crazy, my eyes, I'm choking, and, and I'm going as fast as I could. Little did I know my dad was walking backwards all the way to the other side of the pool. And finally when I made it to the other side of the pool, he grabbed me, and I'm sputtering and spitting. And he says, look at Stan. You swam as a seven-year-old little boy from that side of the pool over here. Do you know that gave me great confidence and that's why I enjoy surfing, big waves. I I love all that stuff now because my dad taught me what it meant to go through that crisis. My crisis was, will I drown? Dad's commitment was, I am right there. You will not drown. But my commitment is to make you a strong little water boy. All right? I think that happens with us. But nonetheless, when we go through that crisis we can call upon the lord and say lord i need you right now maybe that's where you are well now we go to the third stage and i call this needing stage now I, I can't if you can come up with a better word give it to me and i'll i'll change my outline but i want you to look here at verse 49 and 50.
0: you're listening to make it clear with the teaching of dr stan Ponds, founder of make it clear ministries and president of florida bible college in beautiful orlando florida